you are listening to AI Ready Healthcare. I am Anirban Mukhopadhyay, your host from Tiu Darmstadt, Germany. The purpose of AI Ready Healthcare is to connect the advanced technological knowledge of Mekai society to different stakeholders such as clinicians, industry personnel, regulatory personnel to name a few. You can expect deep meaningful conversations about bringing AI into the real clinical routine. Opinion belongs to whoever said it. Anything said here is not medical advice. Together let's make healthcare AI ready. O perpetual revolution of configured stars, O perpetual recurrence of determined seasons, O world of spring and autumn, birth and dying, the endless cycle of idea and action, endless invention, endless experiment, brings knowledge of motion but not of stillness, knowledge of speech but not of silence. Knowledge of words and ignorance of the word. All our knowledge brings us nearer to our ignorance. All our ignorance brings us nearer to death. But nearness to death no nearer to God. Where is the life we have lost in living? Where is the wisdom we have lost in knowledge? Where is the knowledge we have lost in information? You were listening to a few selected verses of Choruses from the Rock by T.S. Eliot. In this episode of AI Ready Healthcare, I discussed with Professor Russ Taylor about surgical AI bringing contextual knowledge and information into the operating room of the future. Welcome to the fourth season of AI Ready Healthcare. I'm your host, Anirban. Together with my co-host, Henry, it is a pleasure to welcome our guest for today, Professor Russ Taylor. Professor Taylor is the John C. Mallon Professor in the Department of Computer Science and the Director of the Lab of Computational Sensing and Robotics at Johns Hopkins. His research includes medical robotics, human-machine cooperative systems, medical imaging modeling, and computer-integrated interventional systems. Of the numerous awards he received in his 40 years career, I guess we can't really say all of those, but some of the highlights would be uh, Mikhail Fellowship, Honda Prize, being elected in the U.S. National Academy of Engineering. Often he is also referred to as the father of medical robotics. So it is really a pleasure to welcome Professor Taylor here, whom for the simplicity of the rest of the podcast, I will just call Russ. So welcome to the podcast, Russ. Okay, well, thank you so much for the invitation. Welcome to the podcast, Russ. It's a great pleasure to have you here today. So as we have heard, you already have a long biography with many awards and many successes paving your way. So we are interested in your becoming as a researcher. So how did your journey into research start and 
how did it proceed until today? Oh, okay. Well, I've always been interested in systems that do useful things. After I got my PhD at Stanford, I spent 19 years at IBM Research as a researcher and research manager. And during that time, I was first looking at manufacturing problems, automation systems, robotics in, in manufacturing. And then I got quite interested wondering if the same partnership between people, technology, and information that we've been using to make computers better could be applied to surgery and interventional medicine and developed a, a, a prototype of an early system, one of the first systems for robots to do any kind of serious help in surgery for hip replacement surgery. This became known as RoboDoc and did a few other things while I was at IBM Research, craniofacial surgery uh, and minimally invasive surgery, but got really was convinced if I wanted to make a career of that, I, I would be better to be in a university with a medical school where I could work directly with surgeons without lots of lawyers in the room. So I, in 1995, I moved to Johns Hopkins and we were able to build a, quite a large program. We got a, a large grant from the National Science Foundation to establish a large engineering research center, uh, which over about 11 years of our funding, we actually spent $65 million. And then after that, the robotics part of that became the laboratory for computational sensing and robotics. And I'm actually the second director of that while I was the director of this engineering research center for computer integrated surgical systems and technology. So that's, uh, that's a nutshell, you know, over the years here at Hopkins, uh, I've been involved in a lot of research, largely around surgery and interventional systems, where again, you have this three-way partnership between people, technology, and information to improve treatment processes for patients. And that can either be done retail, one patient at a time to give less invasive, safer, more efficacious, able to do it at all. But because you've got computing involved in these processes, you know what you did, and you can take all that experience uh, that you have now saved in the computer, and you can use statistical methods to improve the treatment processes for the next patient. And so what I believe to be the case is that really it is the synergy between these two control loops, the one where you're using this partnership to help an individual patient and this sort of larger process loop, which we now, I think, often call surgical data science. But it really is the interaction between those that I think is driving a lot of the revolution we're seeing in interventional medicine. Thank you so much for, I guess, summarizing 40 years of research in four minutes. One of the questions that sort of follow up is that you are talking about, let's say, surgical AI and looking at surgical AI from the perspective of these three trident, there is information, there is okay. people, and there is technology. So maybe just can you give us some insights about how is it different from, let's say, something which we are more used to, like more of the traditional medical image analysis where people are doing deep learning on images? How is it different? Well, in many ways, it's not so different. But, you know, if I'm thinking about 
AI or, or in or computing or intelligence to an interventional medicine. I think there are two aspects. There's, I'll call it decision support. How can the computer give information to say a surgeon to help that process? And that can be done in diagnosis and treatment planning, which is of course, uh, a lot of that is radiology or thought of, but also on the fly in the procedure. But to do that in the procedure for information assistance, uh, the computer has to understand what needs to be provided right now. Now, if I think about the other thing that you can do is you can begin to use technology to help you do what you plan to do and verify that you did it. And again, it, it's the same. The machine and the human need to have a, a shared situational awareness of what's going on right now and what needs to be done. We talk about autonomy in surgery as an emerging trend. Well, some of even from the very first surgical robots were, I think you'd call them autonomous. But fundamentally, you know, there, there are two basic questions. How can the machine be informed what the machine is supposed to do? I mean, beyond say, hey, please cure the patient, which maybe in the future it will be. And then how can, you trust the machine, how can you know that the machine or can the machine be able to do what it is supposed to do and not something else? And of course, these both of these questions require an understanding of the task and an understanding of the patient and the surgical situation. So if I understand your question, what you are saying to the last part of it, so basically one part of it is basically what the surgeon is telling the machine to do. And the second is, of course, whether it's understanding and doing it, following right. it up with the right sort of like ways. But if you think of the way the granularity of this information works, I would probably think that when we go into more of an automation uh, mm -hmm. way, the surgeons are probably thinking at a granularity level of task description very different from what is needed for a machine's perspective. So in a way, the machine maybe it may need three more steps for doing the exact same task that the surgeon is trying to tell it to do. So if we are talking about communication, it's probably not even at the same hierarchy level of the granularity. Like, am I thinking in the right way? I think that's a significant question. And I think often, here's where we talk of medical image computing and computer-assisted intervention. A lot of surgery, in a way, is geometric. You're dealing with structures. You're, you're modifying structures. And so a lot of the communication it has to do with descriptions of anatomy and what needs to be done to that anatomy. Therefore, now that's a very, very hard issue. And when we talk about image segmentation and image registration of all these models to the patient, that's part of it. But, but even very early, a lot also depends on the tasks you're trying to do and how certain you can be of those models. Robodoc, that first system we developed at IBM, the robot kind of moved autonomously. But what you had done in planning is you said, I want to put an orthopedic implant here in the patient's bone. And the computer knew the shape of the bone. And once you could do a registration, 
so that you knew where on the physical patient that shape was supposed to go, you could kind of set the robot up so the robot knew that geometrical relationship. And then it would just machine the cavity while the surgeon observed. So that's autonomy. And generally, you could be fairly sure of the safety of that. Now, when we get into soft tissue and where a lot more of your appreciation comes from vision, real-time vision, all those problems get a whole lot harder. So I think that what's happening, personally, I see, you know, with this issue of autonomy, it, it is, as you say, it will gradually get smarter, but there'll be some things that machine can do better than the human. And what you can see happening is the human gets things set up, say positions a robot or whatever, and then says, okay, robot, you do this part and I'm gonna watch you really closely. Or the robot and, again, I'm gonna use robots here because that's a lot of what I do. The robot and, and the computer are sharing control of the machine. So that say the robot is enforcing a safety barrier. And within that, gradually we're gonna get smarter and smarter. Now, the other half of that, and again, where the surgical data science comes in, is how can you use experience? First, make that communication better. But something else that I think is really, really important is technology does not exist in medicine for its own sake. I mean, a lot of us have fun developing it or whatever, but ultimately you have to show that you can help the patient. And one of the things that is really, really difficult is to quantify outcomes or to relate what you actually did to outcomes. Now, even in manufacturing, that problem is a lot harder than most people think because oddly enough, in computer manufacturing, there, there is more variability at that tiny micron scale than most people understand. But again, it, it is a similar sort of issues, except of course with the human body, it's a lot more complicated. And so I, I think what, what happens with what we're seeing with machine learning methods, we use machine learning from the very, very beginning. In fact, there were even some very early neural nets, but a lot of it was more sort of classical statistical shape modeling was a big revolution in this. But what's happening with some of these modern neural nets is they're able to assimilate huge amounts of information to do at least somewhat constrained tasks. There are problems, though, I think there are two related problems here, and I'm free associating. I, I Stop me if I'm getting too far off what you're interested in. One of them is some of these techniques that work, say, really well for an image segmentation task don't work so well for some other kind of task. A second issue, which I, I view is really fundamental, is the machines so far don't know what they don't know. I think for assurance reasons, it's really, really important, especially with these deep net methods that are so opaque, that somehow the machine has got to recognize when what it's seeing in front of it, what this patient is not covered by the experience of the, of the training set. And I think that's a huge problem. And uh, I'm glad to see there is more and more research targeting it, but I think we have a long way to go to get there. But, you know, it comes back to this, how can you be sure you've communicated properly 
And how can you be sure that you're going to do what you're supposed to do and not something else? Both of these questions requiring a shared situational understanding of the patient. Maybe speaking of the current way of and the current problems of surgical data science itself, I'm interested in what actually caused that paradigm shift or what was the initial spark which started thinking in a more holistic term of, of surgery? Well, I don't know. What do you mean by paradigm shift? Towards from uh, computer-assisted interventions to surgical data science. Oh, I, I don't think it was a paradigm shift at all. Well, from very early days, at least in my involvement, we always, from the very, very beginning, had this notion, in my case, brought over from my experiences of manufacturing, that if you had a computer involved in a process, you could save the data and you could use that experience to do statistical process learning or total quality management or terms like that to improve the process. So from the very, very beginning, folks I was involved with had the notion that you could do these things. And machine learning methods happen very early on. You certainly see, well, first the emergence of the term surgical data science came around. Well, that's great. We finally had a, a term, but that term itself was based on data science. And even the concepts of data science came back from a long time earlier. But I think what did happen is computing got more and more powerful. And even with, you know, computer surgical navigation systems, you got to the point that computer workstations were cheap enough and fast and powerful enough that you could do certain things in the operating world. I think it's the same, the data processing capabilities and machine learning and tagging along with data processing capabilities are further advances in, in, in the computer science and machine learning. And as it became possible to build very large data sets, and you have a powerful enough computers, especially these GPUs and so forth, I, I think at some point suddenly you can begin to do things and people get some good results. And that makes everybody realize that they can do more. What you're beginning to see with data science, maybe, is there are, there are aspects beyond sort of the image processing and the physical intervention that I think some of these newer, more powerful methods help us do. For instance, include more information about the patient. More and more, we need to focus on the entire treatment cycle. I can give you one example here. One of the areas I've done some work in the past is in radiation therapy planning which is very nice because it's the most computer integrated intervention there is. You, you image the patient, you, you plan everything, and then a machine without physically touching the patient shoots beams of radiation into the patient. You hope to kill a tumor, but not do too much damage elsewhere. And it's a very, very complicated inverse planning problem to do that. And so what we did, oh gee, this is 10 years ago, was to use our database of previous treatment plans to treat the next patient, to help us both as a quality control check and to speed up that planning process. Well, that was really great, but you're still basically optimizing kind of a dose pattern. What my colleague who in this work, medical physicist named Todd McNutt, he had the observation says, this is great, but what we really want to do is not optimized dose, but optimized outcome. So I've 
done some work with him and he's done a lot more work beyond that, where the goal is, can I relate this whole radiation therapy plan to outcomes? Can I predict, as an example, from a radiation therapy dose pattern, can I predict what the complications are likely to be for an individual patient? Now, that would not have been practical 10 years ago, but that's where we're going. So, you know, I think the big data, we called it, well, big data was a term before surgical data science, but that that revolution really, to me at least, has been driven to some extent by the explosion of computing capability. And of course, as more people try to approach these problems, people are very good at getting a deeper understanding and developing better algorithmic methods and so forth. So there is a virtuous cycle there. Did that answer what you're, what you're after? Yeah. Totally. In a way, I think we, we also have a lot to thank the gaming industry for here. <laughs> GPUs are 70 computers go way, way back. I can remember a thing when I was a grad student called the Iliac 4 that was actually, it was over 50 years ago, but not on this scale. And uh, what drove it is the consumer electronics, you know, and games and so forth. And now everyone wants a graphic processor in their computer. <laughs> and those got more powerful. And suddenly, it, it's exactly what, what happens, I think. So if yeah. I sort of try to summarize what you are saying is, of course, it's not really like according to you, more not a paradigm shift per se, but it is more of like, the methods were there, the thoughts, ideas were there before. But what really happened more is, of course, one is the computational power that suddenly got really, really to a uh -huh. beyond a threshold where you can do certain yeah. things. Mm -hmm. And also probably the data sets became available to the public so that more people can try out things instead of only if you sit in a certain uh, uh, hospital, then only you have access to a certain data sets. But yeah. I think the core ideas were there, but now clearly what has happened is these machine learning and, and especially these uh, convolutional neural net methods, their, their prevalence has exploded. And part of that is due to the fact that it's feasible to do them. And part of it is due to the fact that doing them, you can do some things much better than you could with previous techniques. So, I mean, for me, in a way, one of the things that was mind blowing, not in, not in medicine, but when, when AlphaGo beat Lisa Dahl in Go, that, that honestly blew my mind. It's something I didn't think would happen for another 10 years. And so there's that, but, but one of the things I think I might say to the current generation of people, I don't think it's wise to think that the current set of tools is going to solve all problems. I mean, in a way, even though we knew about neural nets and so forth 30, 40 years ago, we didn't think they would be all that useful for a long, long time because of, of computing. And there's bound to be some new insights as well. The other thing, um, more on the application side, if, if I may, I, I might want to comment on, is I think it's very important to focus on all aspects of the treatment process. Historically, there's been a lot of work 
on diagnosis and you know computer aided radiology very largely is revolves around diagnosis and now with chi you know bringing that to the intervention side but there's also after the intervention the icus recovery we we always underestimate the impact of nursing on, on outcomes emerging trends and the economics or how healthcare is going to get delivered ai some combination of technology perhaps aided by ai techniques for instance can also help us do much more with home care uh, maybe either to prevent surgery from being needed or from helping with recovery and and so forth and i think one of the things i've gotten more interested in the last oh, four years or so is trying to look more in, into that that set of continual problems. Are there ways that a lot of what we've been doing can can extend this three-way partnership, say, to nursing? And I think there are real opportunities there. But the and then the other trend, I, I honestly think we are in, in terms of CHI, I, I think this partnership is going to get more and more effective as What's going to drive it, I believe, ultimately, is not so much the technology, although that's getting better. Humans, we're what we are. But, but in terms of the information and the ability of the computer to model all aspects of the patient and the current surgical situation is so that the computer can understand, again, what it needs to do and do the control elements needed to provide the requested assistance safely and effectively. And so how would you say are uh, those all of those aspects that you named, how are they uh, currently represented in research? Well, across the board, currently represented in research. I think you're seeing, at least in surgical robotics, more and more interest in autonomy. For a number of years, people have kind of viewed robotic suturing as the goal, the holy grail. I'm a little less enthusiastic about that, although I think it's a good thing to pursue, as I think one of the things that I'd like to see is more attention for autonomous third-hand type things. So the robot, like it during surgery, let, let the surgeon do the things the surgeon does so far really well, but what the robot can do and then gradually learn more skills is do things like assist with retraction in an intelligent way, rather than just a kind of, a, I pull on something and it's there. Or retraction or counter-traction or all these other things that, that are required. So that and improved situational awareness, however it's used is I think where more and more you're seeing things, but you do see a lot of papers about right now, autonomous surgery, autonomous suturing and so forth. Maybe I have a sort of follow-up question because I was thinking of one crucial thing that you mentioned before is about validating these technologies, uh, their impact on patients' life, right? Mm -hmm. So when you are talking about, like, let's say, even if something simple as imaging some form of diagnosis out, we don't yet know exactly how to validate it if we skip the idea of randomized control trial the old way, right? Doing that inside the surgical room is extremely difficult. 
And you are saying like there are so many factors that are over the board to actually bring the care. It's not just the technology, right? So you mentioned nursing and each one of these could have a significantly big impact, mm -hmm. but it might not be easy to tell the funders this story rather than telling I am building this new whiz awesome gig that will be put into the operating room and it will do awesome things. So can you tell us a little bit of a strategy of how to actually get some, I don't know, pilot validation to show that these are also non-glamorous but important things to consider? Well, wow. Uh, gee, uh, in other words, you mentioned funding agencies or funders. That's a hard challenge, and I'm not a political scientist. I think often you need quantifiable metrics. And that's, that's part of the challenge now to get funding, get people willing to put the resources in to get those quantifiable metrics. It's a real challenge. I, I think the, the obvious things to do are convince governments who pay for healthcare. I mean, in the US, for instance, military systems might be a, a good, or VA, different countries have different ways of doing, but somebody has to be willing to pay for accumulating this data and it's massive. I'm not honestly sure how we can go about doing it other than say that it, it's needed to be done. Insurance companies in, in a lot of countries could also have a big stake in this, but still it's a question of convincing people to make an investment now for something that may pay off 10 years from now. And that's all, or five years. And that's always really hard. The other set of issues that I think are very, very, very difficult here have to do with patient privacy concerns. On the one hand, people need to trust whoever holds their data and want to feel some control over how their information gets used. On the other hand, Unless you are able to accumulate the experience over many, many, many people, it becomes extremely difficult to do the sort of trials that are needed. And I think also one of the things I think we need to be doing more and more is moving toward a continuous process improvement model rather than the classical, well, I've got an idea, I'll formulate a trial, I'll do the trial, I'll publish my paper and someone else will go on. But there is a question, how can you do a continuous process improvement model working off data which may have biases in it without fooling yourself, but you need something that has at least the credibility of a clinical trial. It could be the continuous process improvement model can then suggest the right hypothesis and help you design the trial. But I, I think that's the other thing that we need to do more of. Now, in, in manufacturing, it was pretty easy. Those computer chips didn't care about their privacy, but people do. And convincing people to make the investment. You know, in IBM, everyone knew we had to make that investment because we could just see it in terms of the reliability of our computers. But then the, the second problems, how do I deal with the privacy issues around medical data in ways that still enable us to take advantage of the ability to accumulate these large data sets.
Mm-hmm. That's actually a um, very important point you're addressing here, patient privacy and especially yeah. the sparsity of data that unfortunately emerges from it. But one thing that is also quite important for the development of new technologies and also for convincing funding agencies, of course, is to have a consistent, uh, a consistent proposal, which you typically get by communicating a lot with uh, the people actually working in the field, yeah. um, which is especially challenging for computer scientists or, or engineers like us. So Maybe as someone who's very experienced with communicating with surgeons, can you maybe give us some insights and maybe some advice for people in the early stages of their career for how to communicate with surgeons oh. efficiently and effectively? Oh, oh, that's that's a great question. Well, first, us engineers got to not be arrogant. We often say surgeons are arrogant, and may they have to be. I used to say that the most convenient unit for measuring ego is the microsurgeon. But yeah, I, th- I think it's a really crucial question. Ultimately, it is the healthcare, it's the surgeons and the physicians who have to be our, they're our customers as engineers, and they're also probably got to be our main advocates. For suggestions to early, early researchers and to us old guys is try to spend as much time with the surgeons as possible and go into the OR a lot. This is something I think there in Europe, Sir Nawab is an especially forceful advocate of. The times I got the most value or insight have actually been, you know, going into the operating room, which I don't have the time to do as much as I want to anymore, but, and watch what they're doing. Don't make a pest of yourself, but ask lots of questions when you can. And some of it is also finding the right surgeons to work work with. I find that some surgeons are just standard skeptics. They don't believe anything will work. And others are wildly over-optimistic about what can be done. And somehow, on the case of the skeptics, you've got to understand what it is that they would take to convince them or what. And I think it's really important to find a problem that they have. And for the people who are wildly over-optimistic, they're often the ones who will plunge right ahead. You just got to be sure you don't oversell because once disappointed, they can go from wildly over-optimistic to ultra-pessimist. And then their patients. The big innovation in surgery over the last 30 years really has been minimally invasive laparoscopic surgery, which was driven by patient demand. I can remember going to a SAGES meeting just as a guest speaker. I was going to talk about RoboDoc, sort of with an advanced technology session. And there, were, I was told there would be uh, 50 people there because they were all the crazy ones, uh, but there were 300. And the reason was there, uh, general surgeons all were trying to learn about laparoscopic cholecystectomy because patients were demanding it, and that was their main business. And so things were driven by patient demand. But then what you've kind of got to do is you've got to try to understand what problems the physicians are seeing, come up with something. Just talking about it usually doesn't work. You've almost got to show something, but you've got to, you you can't go off for two years and come back because I guarantee you've got it wrong. So it's uh, frequent communication and also trying to find some measurable advantage that can be measured fairly quickly. 
And unfortunately, outcomes are not something that we can measure quickly. So just to understand, if you want to show something that, let's say, somebody said for a particular procedure, they have a certain problem, or they might not even say that, but you just visited the OR and you realize that they are like facing the same problem once or twice every day in the OR. And you said that, okay, so here is my technical innovation that might make this problem easier to deal with. How do you show it to them? Will you bring them to your lab or will you just show them a video demo or how, how does it work for your case? Oh, it varies. At least surgeons are very tactile people. So usually, well, first, if you have something, again, I, I, a lot of what I do is with robots. And if you can kind of mock something up on a robot and get feedback quickly, I think that's good. You can't always do that. Some kind of uh, concept video. Again, the main thing is to try to get feedback quickly. You can often watch and see where the surgeon gets excited about something. But you've, what you've really got to pay attention to is where the surgeon shows high skepticism. Because it's either something hasn't been communicated or there's something really important that you haven't understood there. And I wish there was a simple answer other than experience here. And I'm not sure I'm even always the best at it. I, I often get very excited by things. And often people, I had a colleague at IBM who was talking about manufacturing engineers, said they don't really have much sense of the meta. They don't quite always see the, you show them something and they'll focus, they, they don't quite always see the potential, they'll focus on some little aspect. And it's important to understand when they're doing that, whether that little aspect is really fundamental or if there's an easy way to get around it. I wish, again, I'm sounding like an old guy, which I guess I am now, but, but that's honestly the best advice to people at, well, at all levels, but certainly starting out, is go spend time. There are a, a few places that they have a lab courses in surgery. There's one we started with the ERC that now a colleague has revived called Surgery for Engineers. And if you have a chance to take such a course, I would do it. I guess, I mean, you, you probably have to be in one of these very few selected places to like, I don't know, in London or Strasbourg, Munich, Johns Hopkins. So maybe there are four or five places around which you can mm -hmm. name where you have such an exposure. But I guess mm -hmm. for the rest of the world, it's still a major issue to actually get a chance to talk to the surgeons. Well, uh, yes and no. I, I mean, I think well, most universities with medical schools are, are in cities where there are, and it's sometimes harder. When I was leaving IBM, I went to Hopkins specifically because they were highly integrated with their medical school. Other places are not, but it's still possible. But the other thing I think that's interesting is often you see advances coming out of clinics, out of smaller hospitals. And something that's probably, if you get the opportunity to go talk to people there, they often have a different set of problems. And sometimes those problems have less expensive solutions. First, they have to be less expensive because a lot of those places aren't going to spend uh, a half a million dollars or, or two million dollars for a surgical robot. But there are a lot of problems that technology can address 
and in particular, computing is, is cheap, that AI can address, that can make the life of secondary care or primary care physicians better. And there are a lot more of them. So that's another way to, to have a big impact. And also, if you can, for commercialization, that can be a big advantage. If, well, A, if yourself wanting to get rich, uh, fine. But even if you want to get the resources to have an impact, I think there's significant things that can be done there. I should mention there are other places in the world that are not as rich as North America or Europe or parts of Asia. And uh, I think a lot of these places have very challenging healthcare problems that, in fact, technology, if it's done right, can really help. And I think often we don't want to be arrogant ourselves. There've been, I've seen some really good work from centers, especially in Europe, where they've been working with, with countries in Africa on technology assistance for minimally invasive surgery and education that I think are really outstanding. And so I think there are those kind of opportunities as well. Yeah, wonderful. I think that was really an important thing because whenever we had a like chat with many of our colleagues from clinics as well, they also often think that AI has a lot of value to add to the global health scenario. So I guess we are coming to the end of our episode. And the last question to you would be, if we are thinking about surgical AI and the next five years sort of as a fixed timeline, what do you think would be the sort of questions that our listeners should be focusing on that can add the most value to the healthcare? Ooh, value to healthcare. A lot of it has to do with, with understanding the connection between what you do and outcomes. If I'm looking from information point of view, I think that's important and from a machine learning point of view. I think the other thing, if we're wanting to talk about practical delivery at the patient level, I, I would look to situational awareness. In other words, can I model the what's going on with the patient in a way both the computer and the human can understand, can communicate? Can I maintain that in real time? And then can I, can I have that representation be in a form that I can make practical computations in real time to affect the procedure while it's going on? Now, that still is very vague and broad, but you, know, you can get concrete examples. Can I generate visualizations? If I've got a robot, can I keep track of the patient uh, so that I can enforce say, a safety barrier. One of the areas that I'm working with uh, surgeons here at Hopkins is in otology and skull-based surgery, where you're basically machining bone, but there are structures like blood vessels and things like the facial nerve that you need to get very close to, but you cannot damage or, or you'll do very great damage to the patient. So to do all of that, I've got to understand the tool to tissue relationship much, much better and much more accurately than is really practical to do with the commercial technology today. So similarly, at, at sort of that level of situational awareness, things like imaging, ultrasound imaging especially is, I think, 
important and information fusion. So it goes all across the board. But I think very broadly ways to contribute to situational awareness. Surgical phase recognition is another thing. If I'm going to give assistance to a surgeon, I need to know what the surgeon is doing right now. And I think all of these areas where we're starting to see progress, and I'm hoping that five years from now, we will have seen a lot of progress. Wonderful. So on that note, I hope most of our listeners can focus on their uh, particular topic and how they can bring situational awareness with their AI uh, technology that they are developing that might help in the diagnosis in the complete care process. Thank you so much, Russ, for this wonderful one-hour chat. It was really nice and enlightening. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much for for giving me the opportunity to talk to you. And I, I have very much enjoyed this time. And so again, thank you very much. Thank you very much for being our guest today. Okay, well, thank you. Bye bye.